know God. And so we're trying to find, you know, a lot of this is, is narrative history. So we're looking at stories about people. But what can we learn about God through these stories? Because that's why they're in here. Um, and so last week, Joel talked about 1 Samuel and maybe a little bit of 2 Samuel. But he talked about how God um, humbles the proud, but he exalts the humble. And so he, he looked at the story of Jonathan and Saul and David, especially comparing David, who when he was in sin, he was rebuked and he was humble. And when, Jonathan, or when Saul was in sin, he was prideful. And that led to Saul's downfall and Jonathan being raised up. Um, and so I kind of want to look more at 2 Samuel today. Originally, they were one book, like Joel mentioned last week. And so the story continues where... Um, Saul has died, and he's no longer king of Israel. David is now the king, and the story picks up there. But I want to look at what made David such a successful king. You know, if we think about even modern-day Israel, their flag is the Star of David because they view him as the greatest king they ever had. And the hope of the Old Testament, as we'll see, really is that another king like David will come because David died, and he's not with us any longer. Um, but, but what I really want to focus on is what is it that made David such a great king? And I believe it was his attention to relationships. And David really paid attention to his relationship with God. He paid attention to his relationship with certain friends. And he paid attention to his relationship even with his enemies. Um, but there were areas where he completely failed. And that's when David's reign really went downhill incredibly fast, when he no longer loved those relationships and honored God and honored people above himself. And so, um, if you can turn to 2 Samuel, we're going to start sort of topically with David's walk with God, and then his friendships, and then his, his enemies, and how he treated them. Uh, before we jump into it, let's say a prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for just bringing us together. Thank you for those who are visiting. Uh, I pray that, that all of our, the eyes of our hearts will be open to your word, and that we could be uh, convicted by what you teach us through, through this, these stories. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, what, so 2 Samuel opens up with three deaths. You have the death of Saul. Uh, he was killed essentially in battle, and he was the former king. And then you have the death of Abner, who was the commander of the sort of op, the, rem, the remnant of Saul's kingdom against David. And then you have the death of, of Saul's, uh, one of his sons, who was working with Abner. And it's interesting to note that in each of those cases, a messenger came to David like, hey, this guy's dead, aren't you glad? And David was not glad, even though they were his enemies. But we're not focusing on that right now. Um, and so, it, so then what happens is that the Ark of the Covenant, which is where sort of God's presence was, um, was not in Jerusalem. David had captured the city of Jerusalem, which had been taken away from the Jews by the Jebusites. And David wants to bring it back to Jerusalem. And here we get a strong picture of his relationship with God. Okay, in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. It says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, with rejoicing. Okay, let's stop right there. The reason it's at Obed-Edom's house instead of with David is because he was angry at God. Because God killed uh, Uzzah, I believe, for touching the ark. And David was like, well, that makes me angry. I don't want this to be in my house. 
But God blessed Obed-Edom and everything he had because he was there. And so David thinks, okay, maybe I shouldn't be angry at God anymore. I want, I want to be in his presence. Um, and so there's sort of a reconciliation going on be- between God and David, um, which was entirely David's fault. Um, but uh, so that's why David is doing this. And it says that they carried it up to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So here's David, right? He's bringing up the ark to the city, and he's the king, right? I mean, I, when I picture kings, right hand, right hand right here, kind of George Washington pose, very regal. And David's out here, like, dancing. And you're like, dude, are you crazy? Like, what is your problem? Actually, his wife despises him as a result right after this. She finds it despicable, like you're the king, show some dignity, right? But David can't contain himself. And he, I don't know, I'm not a good dancer, I'm not going to do that again. But <laughs> he, he's dancing, and he's doing all this stuff because of his joy. And so here we see the strength of David's walk with God. That even though he was angry at God previously, when he was restored to God, he felt so much joy. You know, in Psalm 51, David... David had sinned, and we'll look at that story a little bit, but most of us know it, right? The story of David and Bathsheba, and he, he takes this woman and, and all these things. But in it, he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. See, because what happened was that David lost his joy in God, and therefore he went after Bathsheba. But in this moment, this is prior to that, he has this joy in God, and he's not the least bit interested in something like that. Now, I think what's most often missing in my walk with God is joy, right? It's like, okay, I do these things. I I read my Bible. I pray. I have these disciplines, but there's no joy. It's just something I do. And a lot of times what that reveals to me is that there's something wrong, that I need to fix something because clearly I am not feeling the way that I should. Um, the, The joy that comes from a close walk with God is fundamental to having a walk with God at all. Because, I mean, imagine doing something that you hate your entire life. Like, you're not going to do it. Frankly, you're not going to do it. You're going to give up. At some point, you're going to say, I don't want to walk with God. This is not fun. We are wired to seek the things that we enjoy. And ultimately, the thing that we're wired to enjoy the most is God. But there's so many things that get in the way, be it our own sin, be it various distractions in the world, that prevent us from having that joy. And sometimes it's just, I'm angry at you, God, and I don't want anything to do with this. But that's not right, because God hasn't wronged us. And so we need to approach it with, I want that joy again, Lord. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Um, You know, I actually was, we were on campus just on Friday, uh, the campus ministry and and myself and, and Ivy, and we were having a blast praying and we actually read part of Psalm 51, and um, we were like just having a good time walking around. We prayed for maybe a half hour, and Meg gave me permission to share this. It's a good thing, so I don't know why it would, I would need permission, but I did. And um, you know, we were we were on a bridge, and there was a bunch of people down in the water by the river, and Meg goes, "I should reach out to them." And you could just see she was ha- excited about that idea, like that's a good, like it's fun. Instead of like, oh, no, I can't believe, 
uh, maybe I should reach out. It was like, I should do that. And I was like, yeah, go for it. And then, and then she starts, oh, well, that's kind of weird, like shouting at these people, you know, this group of random people. And Cassidy goes, no, you need to do it. <laughs> and so Meg shouts at them, hey, you should come to church. <laughs> and they said they would, but they're not here. Um, <laughs> but the cool thing about it is that it flowed out of her joy that she was having in this time of prayer, right? It wasn't like this forced thing, like, oh, this is my duty. At least it didn't seem that way. And so that's what happens when you have this joy. There's just an outflowing to others. And that's what's going on with David. And when his wife despises him, he doesn't really care. He's like, well, that's too bad that you feel that way. I feel joy in my relationship with God. And so David was called a man after God's own heart. He wrote countless psalms. And it's all because he had this deep relationship with God. Um, but sometimes he wasn't really on his A-game like that. Right? Sometimes he wasn't really feeling that. Um, Actually, Josh, can you go to the next scripture? But I want to show you what the result of this sort of thinking happened for David. Okay, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, it says, um, kind of in the second half of verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we know this to be a prophecy about Jesus, and David doesn't necessarily know that. But the reason this happened, okay, is that David was sitting in his palace resting, and he was thinking about God. He was thinking to himself, I have this palace, and God, his ark, so it's kind of simplistic thinking, but it's, it's right-hearted. His ark goes about in tents. We should build him a house. He deserves a house more than I deserve a house. And God says, thanks for the offer. How about I build you a house? And David is overjoyed at this. But the reason this happened is because David was at rest and his thoughts went to God. And God was so pleased with that, that he decided to do this. And, and I believe God would have brought about Jesus either way, but I don't know if he would have necessarily used David's house or David's line. But God was so pleased with the way that David was honoring him, even in his thoughts. You know, when you're at rest, where do your thoughts go? This is an often an indicator of what you find joy in. You know, I know for me, there's times where it goes to God. There's times where my thoughts go immediately to my worries and my fears. Um, and there's times where it goes to whatever I'm angry about in the moment, which is a struggle for me. And so we have to ask ourselves, where do my thoughts go? And discipline yourself. My thoughts will go to God. Right? Especially when you're just sitting there and you have, you know, it said that God had given David rest from all his enemies. So he didn't have anything necessarily to do. And it's like, okay, what are you going to think about? And so David was scheming and planning how he could serve God. Right? So again, this demonstrates the depth of the relationship, but it also shows how God honored that and, and was, was reciprocating that sort of love that David had given him. Um, or maybe David was reciprocating love God had already given. Okay, so David wasn't always in this place, though. In uh, 1 Samuel, so I want to look at David's friendships now. David had this incredible walk with God, but sometimes he really wasn't feeling it, and he needed his friends to help him. So in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, in verse 15, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, while David was at Horesh, in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. 
And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Harash and helped him find strength in God. Do not be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. And so David is not feeling very courageous because Saul is after him, right? And Saul is the most powerful man in his part of the world at this point. I actually, I, I, once in, I was in South Africa preaching, and I said, you know, I, I was talking about this, I think, and I said, you know what it would feel like if Jacob Zuma, that was their president at the time, was after you? And they all started laughing. And I was like, why is that funny? And they said, well, he's not very threatening. <laughs> and I said, okay, Barack Obama is coming for you with some drones. And they were like, yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So imagine that, right? The, the president of the United States with all these drones and all these things at his disposal is after you, how that would feel. And that's what's happening to David. Saul is after him. And David is feeling afraid. And it says that Jonathan helped him find strength in God. You know, Jonathan, I don't know, sometimes, like, Jonathan's approach doesn't sound very sensitive. He's like, David, don't be afraid. It's not like, hey, David, I know it's tough. I, oh, I know it's so tough. He's like, no, don't be afraid. He's kind of, I, he might be rebuking him just a tiny bit, like, hey, remember how God said this is what he's going to do? Don't be afraid. Trust God. You know, David and Jonathan had superficial similarities. They're both good-looking dudes, probably just ripped because they're warriors. And they, you know, they're famous in their own country for being warriors. But that's not what made them friends. They were friends because of their faith in God. And when Jonathan needed strengthening, David was there for him. And when David needed strengthening, Jonathan was there for him. And this is a, it's a beautiful thing. But often we find ourselves, right, seeking out that closeness with God, but not seeking help from others. You know, you hear this phrase a lot. It's just between me and God. And maybe there's some things that are that way. But that's not how David treated this. Right? David was like, you're right, Jonathan. I need to have more faith. And he actually would seek out Jonathan for help. And so we need to do the same. Because God designed us that way. He designed us to have that family together. So that we can be united in love to him. Amen? Um, And... I want to say this as well. David would go on to honor Jonathan for the rest of his life. A lot of what you see in 2 Samuel is David looking for ways to honor Jonathan, and Jonathan is not even alive. Jonathan was killed, and David was stricken by that in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel. But from then on, he's like looking for ways to honor Jonathan and his friendship to him, exactly as he was doing with God in those chapters. And so we should do the same. The, the, in the book of Romans, it says, outdo one another in showing honor. You know, I have a tendency to seek honor for me, right? It's like, someone honor me, please. And we should be striving to give honor. And when we do that, we actually tend to receive more honor. Like Dave, People honored David all the time, but it's because he was so giving to them. Um, anyway, so that was, that was a side note. Um, okay, so how did David treat his enemies? Okay, so this is actually a great example of what I was talking about. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, in verse 1, excuse me, in verse 1 it says, David asked, 
Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So here we have this, this young man, Mephibosheth, and he knows about the culture around him. The typical practice when you're a king and you take over from another king is that you kill everyone related to him because now they can't make a claim to the throne. They can never say, well, I was Saul's son. I'm of his house. Shouldn't I be king? You can never do that if you're dead. And so typically, a royal house would hunt down all their enemies because these people would be considered their political enemies. Um, but David does not respond this way. He, he finds him. And you can imagine how Mephibosheth is feeling, right? He's like, oh, he's going to kill me. And so he shows up and he's afraid. And David says, don't be afraid. I want to honor you because of your father. And so this man was his enemy. And yet David said, I want to honor you. And there's actually numerous times where David could have killed Saul, for example, his enemy. And instead he did not. He wanted to show him honor. And so David consistently shows honor even to many of his enemies. And he wasn't perfect in this, um, but it, it, it really mirrors the calling of Jesus, right? To love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. And it makes me think that it's a little bit of a hint of what was to come, that this is a good man, but here's the greatest man, and he's going to teach you an even better way, right? And so David honored even his enemies. And this, this just shows that, uh, that this is something that God desired, because God blessed this type of behavior, and he was pleased with it. Um, okay, I want to talk about David's relationship with Jesus. And that might sound crazy, um, because Jesus was not yet born into the world. But I believe that he had one of sorts. And I want to prove it in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. <coughs> Excuse me. It says... While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so here's Jesus talking about David. And Jesus is the Messiah, right? And in the prophecy and in the Jewish teaching, even today, the son of David, 
will be the Messiah. So it's not, it's not Solomon. People thought maybe it'll be Solomon, who was the king right after David. But it wasn't him. And so it's a son of David who's coming. And David wrote Psalm 110. And it's the most quoted passage of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament, especially these lines. The Lord said to my Lord. And so the question is, who is David talking to or about? And the answer is Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord. So David somehow, in the spirit, had this understanding that, there were, that his son, so to speak, would be greater than him. And so he had this sort of connection to him. And he wrote about him. And he even wrote in Psalm chapter, in Psalm 2, kiss his son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. And so David had this loving relationship with Jesus, sort of. Obviously, it wasn't direct, and he didn't fully understand it. But he had this vision of Jesus in the future. And I just thought that was so cool, so I wanted to share it. Because I feel that w- when we kiss the Son, God is pleased. And that's the command that he's given even thousands of years before. Well, a thousand years before. To kiss his Son, lest he be angry. Right? Um, and I would encourage you to read Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 about Jesus coming and what the connection is between David and Jesus. Um, But what was David's downfall, right? He had all these great relationships and he was doing so well and God had blessed him and said, from you, I'm going to establish a kingdom forever and ever. And so that just sounds like David's the perfect guy, right? He's doing so well. Um, Well, there's two things, there's two relationships that I believe he neglected to show concern for that led to his downfall. So in um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 14. So David has slept with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And this is what he tells Joab, his commander-in-chief of his army. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the, many, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So here David has ordered his commander to basically make it look like an accident, but have this guy killed, right? So he's not only stolen his wife, now he's killed him. But we often forget who he is. Uriah the Hittite wasn't just some guy who had a beautiful wife. He was, in fact, one of David's mighty men. So he had been with David for a very long time. He was one of David's most trusted warriors, Probably a close friend. To the point where Uriah, when Uriah came back after David had slept with Bathsheba, uh, Uriah spent time with David, and David got him drunk, which sounds like Uriah trusted David a great deal, right? And so here he is, you know, one of his closest friends, one of his most loyal subjects, and he totally betrays that relationship to cover up his own sin. I mean, how deep into darkness do you have to descend to get to this point? I think not quite as deep as we often think. We all could get there. You know, our own efforts to cover up our sin are many. I know about myself. 
how often I'm trying to like even just change how I say things just a tiny bit so that the true depth of what I've done is not revealed. And if I just continued on that path, eventually I'd end up in a place like David. And so when we don't, when we choose to not honor relationships of those near to us, it just leads to greater darkness. And that's what happened to David here. Uriah was his good friend and he just didn't care. He only cared about himself and what he wanted. Um, and, and so he betrays Uriah and he also betrays his children. Look in chapter 13, verse 1. So it really started with the Bathsheba incident where things just start to go downhill. But it just demonstrates the, the, the necessary nature of relationships to our walk with God. Okay, in the course of time, verse 1, Amnon, son of David, okay, so this is David's son, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Okay, so he's got his son who's in love with his daughter. Um, very strange. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She, okay, she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Well, yeah, it is impossible. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Okay, so here's Amnon. He's so distraught that he can't be with his sister that he's ill. And he looks crazy, maybe like how I look this morning. He just looks a little crazy. And, and here comes this guy. Who, who are you, Jonadab? Asking about it. Where is David? To say, hey, son, why do you look this way? Or what is going on in your mind? Why are you feeling this way? What if David had been the one to ask him that instead of Jonadab? And he said, well, Dad, I'm in love with my sister. <laughs> and now David can say, all right, you need to repent <laughs> and let me help you, right? I still love you, but you need to change. That's not what happens. Jonadab and, and Amnon devise a plan, and he, he rapes his sister. And David did not see any of this coming. Or what was he occupying his time with that he didn't know what was going on with his own children, Right? And so things get even worse. Now, if you jump down to verse 22, um, man, this is a long segment. All right, we're not going to read the whole thing. Okay, jump down to verse 32. It says, but Jonadab, here's this guy again, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, my Lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon has, is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about report that all the king's sons are dead, only Amnon is dead. So Absalom, one of David's other sons, has hatched, has hatched a plot to murder Amnon for what he did to his sister. And it's because David had not punished him at all, which is just horrific. Like, why have you not punished your son for this behavior? Right, Absalom probably would have felt fine with it if anything had been done, but nothing was done. David, it says David was furious, but he didn't do anything. It's just very poor parenting. And I'm not even a parent, and I can tell. It's just a disaster. Right? And so here, Absalom hatches his plan, and a report comes to David that all your sons are dead. Absalom killed them all. 
And Jonadab, who tends to be in on these crafty type of plans, knows, oh, no, it's just Amnon. And so, um, so Amnon has been murdered by his brother. Now, what Amnon did was terrible, but what Absalom did was not right either. And David was not aware of either thing, right? And, it's, and he even said it was Absalom's express intention. So he was going around telling people, I'm going to kill Amnon, and David has no idea. Like, what are you doing? Are you just locked in your room thinking about yourself? He must have been. I don't know what he was doing. And I don't want to be too harsh on David. He was a good man, but he clearly failed here. And this led to, the, to a civil war. And 20,000 people died because of this. Maybe more, probably more. But at least 20,000 people died because David refused to discipline his children. Right? And so his failure to cultivate right relationships led to all sorts of darkness. Um, and so <clears throat> I want to close out by asking, okay, what do we learn about God through all this? In, in the opening of, of 1 Samuel, we don't have to turn there. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. And it was actually talking about Eli's failure to discipline his sons. Because you have not honored me. And so what we learn about God is that when we honor God, when we love that relationship, right, there's a blessing. Matter of fact, you saw it with David, right? He was, he was sitting in his house thinking about God, and there was a blessing. And then when he was sitting in his house thinking about himself, there was Bathsheba. And so when we honor God, he will honor us, right? And that's, a, that's, a, that's sort of like when it says that the humble I will lift up. It's very similar. But the idea is, that there's a blessing in it. And we should take joy in our relationship with God because it's such a blessing. Um, we learn about God that he is a God of justice. Right? Eventually, the people who are doing these things are brought to justice. And even David was punished for his sins. He wasn't allowed to build the temple, which would have been a great honor to him because of all the blood that he had shed and the people that he had killed. Right? And so God doesn't allow him to build the temple. And... And so God doesn't have favorites, right? It's not like, oh, David's my favorite and everybody else is. No, it's honor me, I'll honor you, right? And dishonor me, and there's punishment, and that's good. Because if there wasn't, there would be chaos, um, which is exactly what we see in David's family. No punishment, all sorts of chaos, right? Um, okay, so, so at this time, we're going we're gonna to go to communion. And I want to read something that connects all of this to the cross, in um, Acts chapter 2, verse 34. <coughs> it says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter ends the, last, the first sermon any Christian ever gave by quoting Psalm 110. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord. And so 
this crucifixion was foreseen. And it was a part of Jesus becoming that Lord, that his enemies would be under his feet. And here you see his enemies, the people who crucified him, repenting and being baptized and being put under his feet. It's amazing. It just happens just like that. They hear that and they're cut to the heart. I remember when I heard this, I literally felt like I got stabbed with a sword because of the love that Jesus had shown me at the cross. And so I want to encourage you guys to think about that because what Jesus has done is triumphed over death. He's shown love to his enemies. He's shown honor to God. And now we get a chance to share in that love and that honor. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, how it reveals so many good things to us, things that we could never have understood on our own. I thank you that you loved us, sent your son to die for us on the cross so that we could be a part of your heavenly kingdom. Pray that we would have a heart of joy and gratitude as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.